Welcome to the third episode of the Better Movement podcast featuring Dr. Melissa Farmer. Melissa has a doctorate in clinical psychology from McGill University, and she did postdoctoral research in pain neuroscience at Northwestern University. She spent several years working at the lab of Dr. Vanya Apkarian, where she helped produce a very interesting line of research about the brain's role in chronic pain. The basic gist of this research is this. There are differences between the brains of people who have chronic pain and people who don't, and these can be observed on MRI. And some of these differences involve increased activity in areas of the brain related to emotional learning, and this may play a causal role in whether people transition from having acute pain and eventually developing chronic pain. So in this podcast, we talk about this line of research as well as several other issues, including the limits of MRIs in detecting what someone is actually thinking or feeling, whether MRIs can detect a neural signature for pain, the connection between chronic pain and emotional learning, uh, the value of mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy in treating chronic pain, and Melissa's most recent project, developing an app for helping people with pain. Here it is. Melissa, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> your thing. So you're a pain scientist. I've read a lot of your papers about pain in the brain, and I think that they're incredibly fascinating, and I thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's super valuable and helpful and fascinating, and uh, I'd like to start off by having you uh, tell us how did you get into this field and tell us about your background. Oh, wow. Okay. Um so I uh, fell in love with uh, research in undergrad. Uh, I was in a female sexual psychophysiology laboratory. And uh, I loved, so from mind-body from the very beginning, I thought I was going to continue with that. So I went to uh, McGill to work with Irv Binnick uh, and Jeff Mogul, who were pain guys. Uh, but I went at it sort of a sexual pain perspective approach. And while I was there, I did some animal research, uh, developing uh, an animal model of recurrent yeast infections um, while getting clinical training in sex therapy and chronic pain management using mindfulness and CBT. So it was nice because I could see what could be modeled in an animal and what was just sort of a clinical reality that we couldn't capture with the science. But it was a really rich uh, intellectual environment that was multidisciplinary at McGill. So I, you know, basic scientists went to clinical rounds. I got to hear really smart people talk and say really smart things. And it, um, working at a multidisciplinary pain clinic, uh, helped me understand how different members of a team from different perspectives. Uh, so anesthesiologists, rheumatologists, psychologists, dental or dentists, um, psychiatrists, physiotherapists, how they all can work together on the same patients and and I got to hear them reason through these problems and we saw a lot of really strange so it was a tertiary center we saw really strange cases um and I was it, it was so much more fascinating than sex that I decided I was a chronic pain person um so I what I didn't my 
dissertation work delved a lot into the peripheral changes of uh, nursing sectors with repeated infection. And what I wanted to understand was everything from the you know nursing sector all the way to the brain. So I did my postdoc work with uh, Vanya Karian at Northwestern University um, because I was very um, drawn in by the sort of the emotional basis of chronic pain. It resonated with a lot of the knowledge that I had about emotional learning in general prior to that. Right. Yeah. So, so, so when you so you started off looking at uh, pain from the perspective of what's going on in the periphery, what's going on in the area where something's really hurting. And then you ended up focusing more on what's going on in the brain, which ultimately is processing the information from that area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you've got this great quote in the, in, at the start of uh, one of your papers, I think it's called in search for pelvic pain, where you're talking about the experience of a woman that's got pelvic pain. And she goes to like five different, she might end up going to like five different specialists, like a urologist and a neurologist uh, and a physical therapist and a gynecologist. And each one of them are looking right in the area where things hurt and trying to explain the pain in relation to what's going on in the periphery there. And they're really kind of siloed. Everyone's looking at it on, on their, in the, under their own microscope. And it's kind of like the five blind men uh, looking at the elephant and each saying something different. And I think your idea is that if we learn more about pain science in general, that's kind of a way to get these different people to communicate with each other, help the patient more and see like more of the elephant. Absolutely. Because everyone sees a problem according to their training. Um, physical therapists, I think, by the way, are, are less guilty of this than many other people because, you know, you have to naturally be like a, a psychologist or massage therapist also. It's, um, I think people who work with uh, patients who are out in the world maybe have a different sort of have to serve multiple uh, perspectives on this. But in general, that that patient was, I think we've all seen that patient, someone like that patient who ha- has pain in a specific part of their body. And they the issue is that there are no pain specialists that are well integrated into the healthcare system. And I think that this goes back to... Um, just a lack of pain education in general, like proper pain education, even within the medical system within the US and uh, Canada and uh, Europe, at least that I'm aware of, a lot of the concepts that have been around for years aren't making it into basic education. And so these are things, you know, pain, wherever it is, these basic concepts aren't permeating all of these silos uh, because they are not specific to the body region. They're one of the things about pain science that it took a while to learn for me was that to understand, you know, the, the cascade from like acute all the way to chronic, understanding what happens at the neuron level and then the spinal cord and then the brain and then the neural network and then how that sort of feedback loop, of, uh, you know, interacts with movement and experience over time. People go through a lot of uh, education to learn levels of that. And what you see even in pain science literature is uh, special uh, people specializing in the spinal cord. So even their papers are... There's so much to know just about one yeah. small little thing. It's asking a lot to ask people to know about all of them and put it together into a meaningful picture. And it's hard to think across the levels too. Like I still can't totally get molecular. 
I can get some things, but it took me forever to understand what a signal was. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it also requires a certain amount of mental flexibility that you have to practice. And then it involves mind-body stuff, which is inherently inherently confusing to people, and it, and it raises philosophical questions. And once you get into that, you can go anywhere, as, as we know from uh, Facebook. But let, let's start off. You talked about levels. Let's start off just a little bit at the kind of peripheral level, the tissue-based level. Can you just explain for the people that aren't familiar that much with pain science why pain is not the same thing as tissue damage, why you can have like a herniated disc maybe and not have pain or why you could have a lot of pain in an area where there's not an obvious tissue-based pathology? One of the, I mean, that's a big question. One of the simplest ways to go about that is that um, there are multiple we have to kind of talk about acute pain and chronic pain differently. So even just acute pain, um, there are many physiological steps that occur before perception happens. And many things never even, no susceptive events never even make their way into our consciousness. So for instance, right now, if I'm like shifting in my seat, there are, one of the reasons why I'm doing that um, is that nociceptors are, are, you know, if I were to anthropomorphize, they're sort of informing my body that I need to shift, not stay in any one position. Otherwise, you know, you could get bed sores or a bruise from, you know, pushing against something that, that you're, that, I mean, there's just um, an inherent need for uh, the ability to adapt to an environment and not uh, maintain the same, I don't, I'm getting a little abstract here, but um you need to protect yourself from sitting in the same part of your butt too long. Okay. Yeah. Or you can go there or you can feel practical or whatever. <laughs> uh, but, but, um, so even if, uh, so for instance, one of my favorite examples of this is, uh, that, um, uh, a beta fiber mediated, uh, anti-nociception. So, uh, rubbing your skin lightly like this stimulates a beta fibers, Something that does immediately is it, um, though that stimulation uh, signals interneurons in the spinal cord that inhibit transmission of nociception from that same area. That's so why we, we rub it. That's why we rub an owie after we get hurt. Yeah, exactly. You know, you you rub it really quickly, um, and uh, and that's even before it gets to the brain. So there are sort of innocuous events like that that can happen. Also, inflammation which is someone, something everyone really loves to talk about, uh, has a lot of different timescales for different elements of it. Uh, so for instance, with infections, um, peak burden, usually a uh, peak burden of a bacteria or a fungus or virus uh, occurs maybe two to three days before peak symptoms occur. So there's also sort of this delay in the expression the symptom expression compared to what caused it. Uh, and that's because inflammation takes, you know, a bit of time to mount. It depends on what kind of inflammation it is, but even, um, you know, scratching, you know, my skin like that. Um, if I were to do this over three days, I would get the same type of uh, nerve sprouting that I got in my mouse recurrent infection model. So even just mechanical stimulation, too much of it can, um, uh, trigger, you know, some of these responses. So inflammation in the periphery can kind of change 
quite a lot over time and sometimes ways it's not that, not that predictable. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, that might, that might be a reason why your pain kind of comes and goes at one time or another. Uh, you know, you, you kind of have pain in the morning, but not at night because inflammation levels are kind of this complex shifting thing that, that can change. Absolutely. One of my favorite examples of that is um, TRP1 receptors, which I love. Uh, TRP1 receptors or capsaicin receptors uh, transmit uh, sensation, signals that we interpret as painfully hot. And um, they, it was maybe just like five years ago that I read this. So there's still so much, <laughs> there's a lot of pain science to, to take in. But uh, I read that I, I finally realized that the acidity level of, a, of tissue affects at what temperature B1 receptors activate. So if you have very acidic tissue, for example, very acidic mouth or vaginal mucosa. So I read about this in the context of mucosa. Uh, B1 receptors can activate at room temperature. So you don't need 48 degrees Celsius to trigger a pain response. Is that uh, why some people can eat spicy food and some people can't? That's one of the reasons that's, <laughs> there are lots of, yeah, that's one reason. There are lots of uh, crazy uh, interactions. The capsaicin receptor is very interesting because it changes the behavior of receptors right around it. And it has some very interesting interactions with the receptors for touch and pain pressure. So one of my other favorite receptors. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we, we tend to think that the, you know, what's going receptor, on. Receptor. Just, just by the way, real pain scientists do sometimes say pain receptor. Cause if you say nociceptor all the time, it takes forever. Yeah. I, I got no, I got no problem with that. I think that, uh, that it's uh, a fact. <laughs> I'm okay I, I appreciate, I appreciate the noble desire to keep communication pure. Yeah. Melzak did say that it was an unfortunate blah, 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 but <laughs> pain receptors, come on. Those are pain receptors. That's, that's a fair description sometimes, but what's going on there is kind of like, I tend to think of what's happening in the periphery as like a simple reflexive type thing, at least in comparison to all the processing that goes on in the brain, which is so complex, but but even what's going on in the periphery is so complex, it's just mind-blowing. And I've heard that, and, and, and explain this to me a little bit, that nociceptors, even though I think of them as just like these little like little reflexive things, they can almost like learn from, from stimuli that's happened in the past and have like a memory. Is that right? Yeah. Hyperalgesic priming. Right. Uh, Ted Price does some really interesting right. work on that. Uh, Ted Price is a great person to look up in general. Um, but so one way to think about that is um, the different forms of memory that our cells are capable of. Uh, so um, hyperalgesic priming uh, is something that ca- can be, for the sake of this conversation, conversation can be paralleled with um, summation. Summation is a type of response that certain neurons show uh, whenever there's a repeated stimulus, often at a very, uh, a, you know, periodic, like maybe you know, every two to five seconds, you have some sort of stimulus that's uh, sort of priming, like pumping up that uh, those action potentials in certain parts of the nervous system, like nociceptors, whenever those conditions are met, um, start to just sort of amplify the magnitude of that signal. 
So it's like a Chinese mm-hmm. water torture type of a situation, something that's not that bad in, in one or two, you know, stimuli. After a while, the system's just kind of like gets very reactive to it. Yeah. And that's one of the fun secrets about central sensitization. I know we're not there yet, but sen- oh, go, the no, one- let's go ahead. Let's go ahead. Okay. We're going to move on to the spinal cord. Take us to the spinal well, cord. Ahead. One of my favorite I, uh, factoids about central sensitization is if you want to, the most effective way to induce it is to stimulate, uh, I prefer heat, but you there, there are arguments for C-fiber mediated. So C-fiber uh, nociceptors are thought to predominantly uh, mediate heat pain, although there are some nuances about that, depends on which part of the heat pain, um, or A-delta. But uh, one of the most effective ways to induce central sensitization is, for example, heat pain administered every two seconds, moderate intensity, not high intensity, let's say five to six out of 10 uh, for, um, you know, with two second breaks between each stimulus. Uh, you do can that. You, can you define central sensitization for us? And I know you, you define it very precisely. <laughs> oh, yes. So, um, central sensitization is a, a unique change that happens in spinal cord neurons. So my, my definition is based on the original physiological definition by Clifford Wolf. And it's been bastardized over the years in my perception because um, of lack of understanding of the ideas. But the, the thing itself, if you, you stick with the simplest idea that's been shown physiologically to be true and repeatable and and generalizable over you know 25 plus years it's uh the behavior of interneurons in the ner- in the uh dorsal horn, horn of this of the spinal cord that respond in a few ways um so the magnitude of their discharge increases over time the duration of the sort of the, the you could call it a discharge rate, the spike rate, if you're talking about neuron activity specifically, but the magnitude increases, the um, amount of stimulus required to get to, okay, let me go back for a second. Um, The first part is the amount of stimulus required to activate the neurons is reduced. So you don't need that much of a stimulus to evoke it. So you can have a small little insult and a lot of pain because of this. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, that refers to allodynia. Allodynia is not specific to central sensitization, but that is a symptom that is consistent with it. Uh, allodynia can also be purely peripherally mediated. It can also, some data suggests, could be uh, mediated by changes in, for instance, the, the, the brainstem. Um, so each of, yeah, anyway. Uh, then there's the magnitude of firing in the neurons is amplified. So that, if you were to choose a sort of a correlate, uh, would be similar to hyperalgesia. Although again, hyperalgesia is something that can be caused by the periphery or the spinal cord or contributed to by the brain. And then the final thing is that after it has discharged, you'll see repeated discharges depending on the stimulus over minutes to hours. And that's what's responsible for the after sensation. Uh, so um, anyone who uh, has, uh, uh, so for instance, some um, pain that lasts, um, it, one of the easiest examples for me is uh, based on one of the populations I've worked with, women with vulvodynia, who following repeated stimulation through intercourse, 
So two to five seconds entry repeated over time um, against uh, nerve fibers that are um, trp one sensitive and uh, uh, C-fiber dominant mediated. It's a sensation that's primarily mediated by that. Um, they might have pain for minutes to hours to days afterward. And you see variations of this across different pain populations. One of the other things that uh, is often confused with central sensitization is neuropathic pain. Neuropathic pain does not need to be linked with central sensitization. Can the you reason- define neuropathic pain for us? Dude, it's well, <laughs> before, after 2011. <laughs> <laughs> um, before 2011, it was any pain I don't understand. <laughs> and after 2011, a committee met and they said that you need some hardcore evidence of uh, of a lesion in the. So an injury to the nerve itself, or or the maybe the sheath of the nerve. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So and, and so what? Because in the animal literature, one of the easiest ways to induce central sensitization. Uh, in a more chronic way is through a neuropathic pain model. So that's why they're often confused. Okay. And, but, but uh, according to your view, you could induce central sensitization at the dorsal, dorsal horn with any kind of uh, repeated and maybe even better intermittent, moderate nociception. That yes. could be from a neuropathic lesion or, or something else. So, but uh, sometimes people use central sensitization to refer to a much broader class of sensitivity Tell us about that confusion. That confusion, I think it's well-meaning. Um, it's a lack of an understanding of the, the core idea that the phenomena was originally demonstrated in the spinal cord only. What I, I've, I've thought about this a lot. And what I think happened, uh, there were a few people that, um, and I've I won't name names, although I'd love to. Um, there were a few people that misinterpreted this and and published reviews that were widely cited and sort of read as as you know as truth afterward. But more than that, I think that the basic scientists didn't we didn't do our job in properly communicating what central sensitization was. And that if you look even in Clifford Wolf's uh, papers, review papers, maybe late two thousands, early you know like two thousand. Before 2011, he started. He started to be careful after that. Um, before then, you know, if you look at the criteria, you'd see like three different criteria. You know, so some sort of allodynia, hyperalgesia, and uh, after sensation. And it doesn't specify that it has to be all three. In that, you can have other mechanisms explain variations of those three things. But for but true central sensitization, you, you need sort of the trifecta. <laughs> um, and th- so th- that's something I don't think that pa- uh, basic pain scientists have done a very good job at expressing. So that it's I, not just allodynia. AK first, allodynia can be a symptom of many things, but it isn't just this certain type of allodynia. It isn't just this certain type of hyperalgesia. It isn't just after sensation you can mix and match between those. No, it's all three. So if I'm understanding you right, you're saying that central sensitization is something that happens at the dorsal horn, but you could have other forms of sensitization, which happen further up the chain in the brain. We don't call that central sensitization because when we say central sensitization, 
we really should be, so we don't get confused, let's just talk about the dorsal horn. And, and those other kinds of sensitization do exist and they are kind of more in the center, but we shouldn't use that term because it's confusing. Yes, yes. That's the idea. Yes, uh, you can't freely generalize behavior uh, of spinal cord neurons to the brain. <laughs> like right. you just, you just, you just can't. Um, for instance, uh, there isn't a, uh, is, is developed of a, so for instance, in the brain, the correlate would be fear learning. So that's uh, AMPA uh, and NMDA uh, receptor mediated synaptic strengthening and potentiation that are needed to form a long-term memory. And, and that doesn't happen. Uh, Eve Staconic made an argument a few years ago uh, for something like that in the spinal cord, but I didn't find it uh, convincing. Okay. Okay. So, so let's move up to the brain. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, fear learning. One of the things that I, that I loved about, uh, your research is that, well, let's, uh, first of all, let's get to the idea of finding a pain signature in the brain. So part of the research that you've been involved in is putting people in the, uh, fMRI and seeing if, if you can look at the patterns and find out, is there some pattern there, which can tell us that the, that the person's in pain uh, mm-hmm. or if they're in pain, can we expect to see that pattern? That's a pain signature. Am I getting that right? Explain that to me. Yes, you're, yes, you're getting it right. Uh, it's a, um, it is a, a view that is, it comes from these old ideas that there are specific brain regions that mediate specific parts of the experience and that you, any could- conscious experience. Yeah, and that you yeah. could like statistically uh, pull out the contribution of any of those areas. And the fact of the matter is, is if you, if you have a single brain region, if it doesn't have a brain around it, it isn't going to do anything. The the whole purpose of, I think that there's a benefit to the the you know pain matrix pain signature idea, but the benefit is that it's showing that the each of these pieces need other parts in order to function. So it's the difference between a brain, uh, you know, a, a view of the brain is like these specific regions mediate these specific properties versus this group of regions work together to create a conscious experience and yeah. they each, and, you know, contribute different elements of it. Um, th- there are a lot of, and there's still, this is something that is still, in this particular area, the the sides are um, currently uh, defined by uh, Gian Domenico Ionetti, who's sort of like the anti-matrix view. And then there's Tor Wager, who's really uh, taken his uh, neurologic pain signature as far as he can go uh, and try to generalize it statistically as a uh, as a map that you can use to determine whether or not someone is in pain or not. And it's based on acute pain. It isn't generalizable to, to uh, chronic conditions. So why isn't this pretty easy to test? I mean, if, if this uh, Ianetti and what's his other guy, if they wanted to have a, a wager, it'd say put someone in, in an MRI and, uh, you know, can you accurately guess whether that guy's in pain because of the way his MRI looks? Isn't that kind of an easy uh, uh, 
argument to resolve? No, it's not. <laughs> so so not? what it requires is a lot of uh, uh, statistical sophistication. So Vanya and I believe it's being this paper that's coming out is being led by Andrew Vygotsky, who um, he has a he's uh, he works with Upcarin right now. He's um, uh, switched over from more of a kinesiology perspective, uh, muscle physiology sort of perspective to uh, brain imaging. And uh, some of the computations that he's done are quite sophisticated and show the amount of what it, it's. So this is something that will be published within the next year, I believe. And what it shows really clearly is that the statistical assumptions behind these types of analyses are poorly understood by the people who use them. And I'm, I'm, that's, that's like my clear as mud kind of way of explaining it because some of the analyses get quite sophisticated. But these all have statistical assumptions that need to be examined really carefully and thoughtfully um, before just saying that two maps are the same thing. Um, and also just from a practical experience, I, I have some unpublished research that I, I tried to, I, um, I've tried to do it myself. And whenever you do a really carefully controlled experiment, that's what we call event related. Uh, so, um, in brain imaging, there are two different types of studies. You could say there's like a task related, and then there's the resting state related. Uh, so you put someone in an MRI, you ask them to do something and you see what their brain does. That's the task related. What you do is you then make a model. I think based on what I told you to do that I should see brain activity here, 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 and here. I'm going to make a model of that. And whatever I find at the times and places that I expect brain activity, I'm going to say that that validates my assumption, my hypothesis, which means that you're only going to find something that's as clever as the researcher in a sense, because the researcher is projecting their expectation of reality onto the data and they're only looking where they think they're gonna find something. Uh, resting state data is uh, any scan where um, uh, you just let people's mind wander, you don't ask them to do anything and you can do statistical analyses uh, between and across regions and see the dynamics a bit better um, but still you can only make these sort of vague, uh, conclusions, like this is how much these two areas communicate. And if you, for instance, correlate that with the clinical severity of pain, then you make the assumption that, you know, that that symptom that you're looking at is correlated with, you know, it, that that's somehow mechanistically linked, but uh -huh. it's an assumption. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, with some of these caveats in mind about the difficulty of, of uh, interpreting MRI stuff, and I want to get back to that a little bit more. Tell us, you know, what uh, you have found working in the Apcarian lab about, uh, for one thing, what kind of pain signatures we can discover, and also the transition from acute to chronic pain, and, and whether there are brain, I don't know if the right word is signatures, associated with that transition that can allow us to predict who's going to transition from acute to chronic pain? So one of the first things that there are a few major principles I've learned. One is the value of measuring spontaneous pain. And that's pain that isn't pain that you like 
cause, you know, like with a thermode, you just put it, I'm going to put this, you know, thermode on your forearm and it's going to tell me about your back pain. That's something that most of the, the pain imaging field is built based on whenever they look at chronic uh, populations. One of the things that Vanya did that was really brilliant uh, is he had a finger scan device made. It's just a potentiometer, a displacement potentiometer. And he'd have people while they were laying in the scanner, you know, sort of with their fingers indicate how little or how much pain they have. And this is calibrated to every person to where it's like zero. How long are they in that scanner? 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Okay. So there's, so they have enough variation to get some data. Yeah. And so they read it second to second, moment to moment, whatever pain they have, this has been done in uh, men with chronic pelvic pain. This has been done in men and women with um, uh, low back pain. This has been done with post-traumatic neuralgia. This has been done by Paul Geha with, um, oh my God, I can never remember it. Oh dude. It's the one name that I always forget. It's the what a melalgia. <laughs> it's one of the um, ones that uh, is genetically predisposed. It's a neuro- nasty neuropathic pain condition, uh, and also um, complex, uh, yeah, complex regional pain syndrome. Um, so you, what you find is that, and any patient can tell you this. Pain changes second to second, moment to moment. It's not just right now. It's a ten. Okay, but right. Now it might be different. Wait 10 minutes, it'll be something else. And what Vanya's found is that variability over time, you can sort of see it as a, you know, or maybe from your direction, as a, you know, a time, a time course, you see you're then able to extract brain activity that goes up whenever their pain perception goes up, goes down whenever their pain perception goes down. And, and what you find are these are some similarities across chronic pain conditions, but a lot of differences. One of the things that has been most interesting over time was based on that original spontaneous pain data, and it's in people with chronic back pain. So a lot of uh, Vanya's work has been based in people with chronic low back pain and or compared with knee osteoarthritis compared with people with CRPS. Um, So one of the other things that he's done that's quite nice is look across populations rather than just focus on a single population for each study. Um, And what he found in that original, those original works was that the medial prefrontal cortex was a dominant uh, brain region that was, that always, the activity always increased whenever someone's pain was increasing. And it'd go down whenever the pain. In all three kinds of pain that he looked at, or that that was common to the knee and the back and the. Well, uh, that primarily to that was primary to um, low back pain. You didn't. And you see don't, as, and you don't see that pattern with the other ones. You don't see it as clearly, no. And that uh, that you could argue with knee osteoarthritis, osteoarthritis, you could argue that um, these are all you know for uh, interpretation, but you know you could argue that there's still some peripheral incoming peripheral input. So it may not be as brain mediated as uh, low back pain. Um, with CRPS, uh, there are also probably um, diverse uh, vascular and, and nervous system changes that aren't wholly contained in the brain. Um, so in this, so it seems to be something that's quite specific to low back pain. But the reason it's interesting is that it's, a, it's the area is something that um, is associated with emotional learning. And so 
in across the years, across like 15 years, in multiple studies, he came up with the same region using different methods, different approaches, different populations of people with low back pain, and it kept on coming up. And one of the reasons why I have a lot of faith in his research is that uh, the, the outcome of the, so he also did the first longitudinal study of subacute, so pain within like you know, someone's had low back pain for maybe, you know, two-ish months to the chronic phase. So one to three years, he followed them longitudinally. That first year he had five different scans or sorry, six different scans across that year of the brain, took tons of questionnaire data too, um, to try to predict how could he, is there anything in the brain that could tell him who's going to have pain a year later? And what told him that the things that predictable, the measure that predicted that was how much the medial prefrontal cortex was communicating with the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens is involved in um, uh, reward prediction, salience, and I mean, some would say sort of positive reinforcement learning. Um, but it, it again highlighted that the people who transition to chronicity are the ones who are, have, there's more information being shared between sort of a, vaguely put, a reward region and an emotional learning region. So it's, it's that process seems to be driven by a sort of a motivational, motive, emotion and motivational circuit. And again, it was foreshadowed by all those studies in the 15 years prior. Um, he didn't know what it meant then. But th that's one of the really nice things that, that, you know, has come out of that lab. And it suggests whenever they uh, looked at the pattern, sort of the, the, pain, the pain matrix signature kind of pattern over time in this population, they found that, you know, it, whenever people first came into the study within the first two months, they saw that very acute pain typical signature. You know, it looked like acute pain. You could... Uh, compared with someone who got, you know, a heat thermode placed on their forearm, it was the same brain signature. Uh, but over time, the people who, first of all, the and this was collected with the data, you know, the fingerspan data, where people weren't rating anything outside their bodies. They were just telling us how much pain they were experiencing in that moment. So it wasn't an external stimulus they were rating. It was their internal state. Uh, for the people whose pain resolved, which was about 50% of them, over time, because they aren't rating anything, they, have, they don't have pain, that map kind of disappeared. Uh, for the people whose pain continued, they saw a slow shift from those more sensory regions to emotional regions, like the amygdala, um, certain parts of the um, uh, medial prefrontal cortex. Um, and whenever they tracked over the same time period, people who just have chronic low back pain, sort of as a, an additional control group, at one year, um, the people whose pain had transitioned to chronicity, their pain looked more like chronic pain patients. So they saw in time, so the, the how I interpret this is, Whenever pain is fresh and it's you know you're you're still working with it, 
it makes sense that the sensory regions of the brain are, are processing that information. But your the sensory regions of your brain can't just do that for the rest of your life because there are new threats that come along. You can't, you wouldn't be able to focus on new threats. And so there seems to be sort of like a passing on of responsibility to an older part of the brain, which is the subcortical sort of emotional regions. And that's why a year later, the brain areas that are active whenever someone is feeling pain in their back are emotional regions. So, and it, that also, you know, we've, and prior to this, we were talking about the sensory nation, nature of emotions. This also captures some of that where, I mean, I'm sure many people who are watching, there's, they have a trigger and they know how their body feels whenever they have that trigger. For me, it's like my throat tightens up and my chest tightens up. That's my anxiety response. And in that sense, for all my life, whenever I felt anxiety, I feel it in those parts of my body. It is embodied. So there, whether it's learned or innate, I, I don't know, but there is a precedent for um, sort of this hardwiring of, uh, of emotional sensations in the body. And this is a, a nice snapshot of how that could evolve. That's great. So, so it sounds like to just kind of sum up pain goes from being at the outset, at the acute stage, more of a sensory experience to more of an emotional uh, experience, at, at least in the, in terms of the parts of the brain that are governing what, whether that conscious perception happens. And something that I kind of noticed kind of listening to my own body over time was that, uh, all, I mean, all sensations have some emotional element to them, all, all conscious perceptions about your body, but some there's, there's way, way, way more. And there's one, this one kind of insight I had once was that different kinds of pains that I can have, uh, a, a little bit of pain might actually be like really bad. Whereas a lot of pain might not be that bad in terms of suffering. So like if I have a little pain in my neck, that's like right up in my business and it's, it's emotional and it's like right in my, in my head here. And it really bothers me. There's like an emotional feeling of fear and how long is this going to go on? And lots of, and I'm very motivated to get rid of that. Whereas if like I smacked my foot on the table and it's really, really intense pain, it's not necessarily that bad. It's just like, Oh, wow, that really hurts. And I'm not that I know it's going away and I'm not afraid of it. And it's, and so th this idea that the, the sensory discriminative nature of pain, like how, how intense is it? Where is it is different from the emotional effective, how motivated are you to get out of it? And how many, how many feels does that give you? Th those are kind of different things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some, a couple of things that come to mind, um, often things that are more centralized in the body, meaning center line uh, are seen as more distressing. So for instance, uh, people with trigeminal neuralgia or migraines, it, you also, if, if you think about it's, it's uh, you could argue it's easier to forget or to ignore or to dissociate yourself from pain in an extremity than from something that's midline. There's also some element of that is visceral pain. 
So somatic pain is defined as, um, in, in terms of pain science, somatic pain is pain uh, that originates in uh, bone, uh, skin, or muscle. And visceral is in sort of the, the visceral structures. Uh, visceral pain, by definition, according to Fernando Severa's classic work, it's always accompanied by a little bit of sympathetic arousal and negative affect. And the one of the ways that that's been explained is that if you have, first of all, it takes a bit to get visceral pain. Um, but if you're, if something has, if you have injuries in one of your internal organs, that's probably pretty serious. So you need more motivation to protect your body to sort of, uh, to recuperate. Um, whereas arguably, if you have a massive injury in your hand, you could cut it off and your organism would still live. Um, so it's, there's also a different emotional valence that could be linked with the importance of the body part. Um, you, you talked about the, the very emotional uh, nature of uh, pelvic pain. Yeah. Your, and, and I have that experience. I like this idea. The, the midline. Oh, were you about to say? Well, I mean, the, the, I like that idea about the midline. I hadn't thought about that, but that's kind of what I was saying about the neck. It's like right up here with me and the foot that's way down there. You know, it's all, it's almost like not me. I mean, it's, it's bothering me, but, but it, but I can ignore it a little bit. And there's some types of pains that's just like nausea, a little bit of nausea to me, even if it's not that intense, that really, really bothers me. Yeah. Oh, I hate nausea. But this also generalizes though, to space around the body. And one of the really nice studies that showed this was, a. Uh, uh, Gian Domenico Inetti's work, I think it was like 2010 or 2011, I don't remember which, but he had people with um, CRPS. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure he blocked their vision. He had, each person who was in the study had an afflicted arm. Uh, so um, typical symptoms of CRPS, uh, you have increase. So a number of things will be pain, exquisite allodynia, uh, the skin will get a bluish shiny tint. The hair will grow strong, like more. The nails will grow longer. Um, it sweats. There are lots of uh, sort of vascular changes that happen. Um, but also the temperature changes. Sometimes it drops a bit. And what he did is he had people with unilateral CRPS pain, uh, upper quadrant, uh, without being able to see where their hands were exactly. He had them switch sides. And then he did temperature and sensory testing before and after the switch. And let's say I have my, let's say that my left arm is my CRPS arm. Whenever it moved to the right side, the temperature would slightly normalize and there'd be less sensory abnormalities, like the sensitivity would normalize a bit. And the healthy arm, the temperature would change slightly and become more sensitive. And the really like, profound implication of that is that we also encode quadrants of space around our body as more or less painful. So for that person, for the person with CRPS on their left side, left side is dangerous. They probably respond differently to threats approaching from the left side than the right side. Awesome. I think Laura Mosley might've done some, some research on that. How consistent is the, is the kind of general, uh, work and, and, and uh, ideas of Laura Mosley with Vanya, how would you compare and contrast? Oh, um, mostly he's a bit everywhere. 
Um, he does excellent research. Uh, I think that what he focuses, I would say the difference is that um, Vanya's work focuses more on the person's perception of what's happening inside their body. Whereas in a very general sense, Lorimer focuses more on relation of self with outside, self with external, like visual cues or sensory cues or moving in the world. Vanya doesn't do a lot of stuff incorporating movement. Right. Well, I think what, what uh, when when Vanya came out with that paper that was on predicting the, the transition uh, from acute to chronic pain, Mosley wrote a blog post and said, what if I could have got those people at the two months? Could he have prevented the emotional learning that's happening with pain neuroscience education, with um, getting those people to maybe not catastrophize is there a way, since this is, you know, in some ways a mental event that's going on, of course, it's an unconscious mental event, uh, what, would there be some way to help with that so that transition doesn't occur? So Vanya came out with a paper within the past year-ish on a it's, a, it's a pilot study from a small clinical trial that he was able to do. He found an answer for that for, that's more applicable to women than men which you could argue is, is great because, uh, you know, proportion of uh, women with chronic pain tends to be greater than that of men. Uh, but what he found was that uh, if you get women within that first couple of months of uh, developing back pain and you give them naproxen plus L-DOPA, for that group, uh, there was an 80% reduction in pain over, and he followed them over three years. So that group had a really dramatic reduction in pain. Either the pain would completely go away or it'd go, you know, it'd be minimal after six months. And whatever uh, change he saw was maintained. The less, uh, so that was specific to women. And um, his- so that, so that didn't work in men. His interpretation, for, so there, it's open for interpretation. Uh, just generally the mechanism was uh, the mechanism addition of naproxen reduces peripheral inflammation. One could argue that addition of L-DOPA is increasing learning that there's less inflammation in the body than there should be. That's one way of looking at it. Uh, you could also uh, argue that women may be more predisposed to emotional learning than men, uh, depending on uh, how how emotionally malleable they are, how emotionally, uh, I mean, another way of stating the, that whole story is people who are emotional learners are more likely to develop pain given this, you know, right circumstances. Can you, let, let's talk more about emotional learning. Cause I've always found this, this phrase to be kind of confusing. Does it have some uh, connection to kind of like a Pavlovian style of learning. So like where you start to associate one thing with another thing, like you start to learn that every time I bend over, I'm going to have back pain and those things become very, very, very connected in your mind. Is, is, is that kind of what's meant by emotional learning? It begins with that. Uh, but what is implied more is the suffering that comes with chronic pain is the emotional learning. AKA, yes, every time you bend over, it'll hurt. But what does that mean if you can't bend over and pick up your grandkids? 
You know, that means that you can't interact with your loved ones. So it's, in a sense, it's linked with all the consequences of chronic pain and the suffering that that uh, triggers and maintains over time. So is it fair to say you're starting to like build this model of the world that it's a dangerous world and we need protection. And so the protective parts of the brain are reaching in there to, to protect you at all times. Kind of kind of reminds me of like the way, like kind of like a PTSD situation where if you go through trauma, uh, you have learned that the world or this particular stimulus is a dangerous place and you have this huge protective response and there's a memory there, there's a learning that happens and you'd really kind of like to, to forget or unlearn <laughs> this horrible thing that you've learned about the world, but you, but you can't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there, there's some people with uh, pain who will say the first, you know, six months of it, it was like they had PTSD. Um, I've heard this from patients, from several patients over the years, uh, you know, whenever they sort of obsess about it early on, maybe often correlated with a really stressful period at work. Um, but it's, they'll, they'll, that's the perfect condition, sort of the psychological state for, um, long-term emotional learning. You're creating a, a constant fear state that's reinforcing whatever you're learning. So right. the answer to that is um, reducing anxiety, uh, increasing parasympathetic arousal with deep breathing as much as possible to where you aren't training your body to expect fear with every single movement. Right. So yeah, let, let's get into a little bit about how we can use this um this information to help people that are in chronic pain, because we know it is an incredibly challenging thing to treat. It's, it's like kind of like using this idea of memory. I mean, it's, it's, it's easier to get things into your memory than to get them out. If they're really burned into your memory, how do you forget something or how do you unlearn something uh, or how do you break a connection that's been made? So what are some of the ways you go in? And I know you're interested in CBT and meditation and things like that. One of the most beautiful things about emotional memories, which is one of the reasons why I'm most, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic about chronic pain is that um, emotional memories, we know like, what is it? 20 years now, we have 20 years of animal data telling us exactly what happens with emotional memories. And one of the beautiful things about emotional memories is that we know that by definition, they can be reactivated and fundamentally altered. In this process, if you want to look into it, it's called memory reconsolidation. And the person to learn about it from is Kareem Nader. Uh, He was also at McGill. Um, And uh, the framework, the learning framework is that if you have an emotional event, sensory, emotional, whatever you have you, whenever you reactivate it, if you're able to reactivate it to as full of an extent as, as you're comfortable with, um, you have a four-hour window where that memory becomes fundamentally labile to new learning. So let's, if we assume that chronic pain is a um, a fear learning phenomena that's intrinsically linked with sensation. What that means is that taking a situation whenever you know that you're about to be suffering, maybe during a flare, for example, or maybe you know how to induce the pain and you know that you're going to you know, go into it. I've, had, I've worked with patients one-on-one with this, but if you know that you're about to get to the worst of it and you have a plan over the next 
especially hour, but four hours to make sure that you wind down as much as possible. If you're able to create circumstances where you're more relaxed, less fearful, um, and if you're able to introduce some novel element, some novel learning element that violates your expectations, that's the perfect recipe for emotional learn or emotional memory revision. And what happens, what will happen, as long as you end up more relaxed than you began, that memory will be re-encoded as less frightening. So you can do that over multiple sessions, uh, you know, with a gradual approach. You can do it in big whopping sessions. The, the main thing that um, is tricky about this is that the more you activate the memory, the more you suffer in the moment. And these are often things that people work really hard to avoid feeling. Um, so it's, you can, so there, there are ways to manipulate this with just both behaviorally and with the aid of, of medications. Um, but behavior can work perfectly fine. Uh, for instance, deep breathing is a very effective way of activating the parasympathetic nervous system and ensuring that you are more relaxed than you began. So even if nothing, even if you don't do anything else, just deep breathing by itself and making sure that you don't introduce any novel, uh, uh, frightening, you know, any fear elements, any more anxiety over the next four hours, that's your, that's your encoding window that you can ensure you've, you've changed the, the fundamental structure of that memory. The thing so, is, is, these memories are like webs. Um, so you have the pain itself, but then all the things that the pain is related to, it will also uh, dampen the memory of all of those connections of that memory. So you're working it on a network of memories. It's not just the pain memory itself. It's great. So, so learning got you into this, but learning can get you out as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's the emotional nature of the, the learning that makes it susceptible to change. Yeah. And if there's, if there's this memory, my understanding of memory is it's, it's, uh, it's like every time you access that memory, you're kind of like rewriting it. And every, yeah. and, and, and every subsequent time you have the memory, you're looking at not the original version of the writing, but, but the, that's why they, they kind of change. They slowly change over time. Yeah. And you can change the memories related to pain, you know, slowly over time. Absolutely. Uh, and the thing, the, one of the tricky things with pain is that it often tags along with what in CBT or psychology is called a core belief. And uh, um, actually, Gilletta talks about this. She's spoken about this really nicely uh, in, in her blogs. Um, there's, we all have these core beliefs that we've had since we were young, uh, often formed within the first few years of life. And they are statements about ourselves, our worth, our lovability that are in terms a child can understand. I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. Um, I, I can never do anything right. These very simple statements where if you take any person who's depressed or anxious or catastrophizing, you can filter down the layers of thoughts to simpler and simpler and simpler thoughts. And there's always a core belief underlying it. And it's often from childhood. And, and it often plays a, a role in a lot of the conflicts that you experience throughout life. 
And one of the ways that it's sort of your template for what, why life sucks for you. And because chronic pain introduces so many different challenges, it will often piggyback on that sort of core injury, that core belief to where, and this is something that Peter O'Sullivan gets at whenever he does his really uh, thorough intake assessments of, you know, what, what is, you know, I've seen it in action and then also how he describes it. He gets to the core belief of what the, sort of the person's, what the person fears most is true about them. And by reactivating that part of it with the emotional memory of the pain, you then make that core belief susceptible to revision too. And that's where that's that's where some magic comes in. Yeah, just for those who don't know, Jaletta Belton writes about her recovery from chronic pain and the way she writes about it is, well, for one thing, I recommend everyone go re- read her blog. Uh, but there is this, I, I like this idea of core belief because what she's, what she's describing that is a shift in her core belief about what her pain meant that happened, which was kind of like this when she started going downhill towards getting better. That's when she kind of like got over the hump was just this totally different conception of maybe if it was, if it was not being broken or it was, it's okay for me to go uh, do stuff or not, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but that seems to be what she's talking about. And and the the underlying belief underlying all core beliefs is that somehow we're separate from love and and it's i don't i don't know if it's a human thing or what but um the illusion that we somehow need to do something to be loved is underlying a lot of society's fears but also a lot of the the core beliefs that that feed into the chronic pain cycle like this is another example of how, like I don't, I don't deserve happiness because X, Y, and Z, and it's all this this core illusion that that we're unlovable, that we needed to have done something to be lovable to deserve other people's love, and all the negative experiences we have throughout life that have reinforced that that false narrative, that illusion. It, the whole thing needs to come down eventually. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, that's uh, that is, that's very profound. One thing, one uh, caveat I want to throw in here uh, is uh, something I kind of meant to say earlier. There's something that I always say whenever I'm talking about pain in the brain uh, is is just because the brain has something to do with pain, it doesn't mean that you can think your pain away or you can therapy your pain away or that pain is your fault or that it's not real or that it's imagined. The parts of the brain that are involved in creating your pain are unconscious, not necessarily subject to your control, and no one should ever feel, you know, bad or stigmatized for, for having the kind of brain that's better at emotional learning in regard to pain than, than anyone else. The thing is, is, is uh, the, uh, something I love to tell people with pain is that their their bodies, their brains did everything it was supposed to do. It's, it, to me, the more I got into the brain, the more I learned that you know, we, there are some people who will call it like, a, um, you know, the neuropathology, you know, that we found was X, Y, Z. And I don't find any pathology. What the body did is it learned a threat really effectively. And our bodies are naturally um, designed. I don't know. They're, they're naturally um, 
they naturally amp up important information to make sure that you learn it and that you act on it in the future because it protects you. So even central sensitization is your body protecting you so beautifully. Like there's nothing that goes wrong in this process. Our, our brains are naturally fantastic at emotional learning, better than any other kind, kind of learning. Adding a strong and negative or positive emotion makes a memory so much stronger. So the body and the mind are working exactly how they should. The, the only thing is it never went back to baseline after the threat was gone. Right, right. Learned so well. So there, there is no, so chronic pain, even if it's maintained by emotional regions in the brain, um, there it's no more or less real than vision or taste or any other perception, sensory perception we have. It's equally as real. T tell us about your most recent business that you're involved in that has something to do with applying these principles and helping people in pain. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Vanya, myself, and a chronic pain patient, uh, uh, Mika Marjolakso, have gotten together and created Avo Health. Uh, it's in its current form, it's a, a smartphone app that um, uses mindfulness and CBT to uh, help uh, guide people with chronic pain through that experience. And it incorporates these sort of embodied neuroscience ideas, uh, mindfulness meditations that I created. So this is one of the interesting things I've, I've been getting into. So if you want, for instance, your patients to have mindfulness meditations that a neuroscientist created, <laughs> this is a good thing. But, but right now uh, we're going to be launching in two months and it's free. Uh, we want to just see how people benefit from it, see how we can learn from the experiences of, of people who are suffering with actual pain. Um, the, the idea is the initial product is mindfulness-based CBT um, that I, I wrote. Uh, it'll evolve into a reinforcement learning-based uh, program that uh, suggests recommendations for different treatment combinations. So at the core of this is that the mind needs the body, the body needs the mind. The mind is hungry to learn from the body what the environment is around it. And so by understanding that there'll be peripheral elements, some spinal elements, and then some sort of brain contribution to the pain experience, uh, you then get out of this, I don't know, some of these, these some of these, the thinking that uh, there should be one drug that I finally take and my pain will go away. The fact of the matter is that if multiple parts of your nervous system are functioning in different ways, they need different parts of treatments. And so one of my biggest beliefs is that partial treatment response is fantastically important because it can tell you, it can teach you what what your body is responding to. So if you have a, a patient who, you know, responds to massage or to physical therapy for a couple of days, that's fantastic. That tells you maybe, you know, two or three out of 10 of their pain is muscle related or is tension related. Um, and if you were to get that under control for a long enough period of time, there are other layers that can then be susceptible to other treatments. So it's, it's, we, the, in a sense, the, we don't care what the treatment that we're, you know, we don't care which treatments they are. What 
what we care is that it's matched to a person's symptoms in a way that reflects their actual experience. So we use this by like, you know, we track their pain each day uh, and we um, use analyses uh, and methods developed in Vanya's lab to um, identify different types of patient groups who are more likely to respond to different types of treatment combinations. That's great. Oh, uh, tell me about uh, the role of mindfulness and meditation in helping with chronic pain. Uh, um, I that's so big. Uh, it's um something I think the word mindfulness is a bad word because a lot of people have some judgment associated with it. Um, one of the things that I think is most important about, uh, most useful about mindfulness is learning to not judge, uh, physical sensations or overinterpret, but also there is lots of emotional processing that occurs during motivation that can be incredibly therapeutic from a psychological perspective and a physical perspective and not being afraid of those emotions as they happen and not being afraid of what comes up is a practice that can be learned in that the practice is what you decide to pay attention to and what you decide to let go. So it's both inhibition of attention and focusing attention and being able to just give us an example of what that looks like. If you're like putting non-judgmental mindful attention on something that's going on in your body. Sure. Uh, For example, um, let's say that someone has uh, pelvic pain and um, which is negatively balanced uh, and you're asking them to lie back and and deep breathe and relax. Uh, Someone who does this beautifully, by the way, is Bruno Cayun. He's a a mindfulness uh, CBT therapist in Tasmania. Who's fucking awesome. He's, his work is so beautiful. So beautiful. Uh, one of the, so if you have the, so you have the person relaxed and to start focusing on different elements of the sensations. So for example, what temperature is it? So just for right now, everything else, you know, let it go to the background. What temperature do you feel? If it's numb, it might have no temperature. If it's burning or electric pain, it might have very strong temperature. Okay, so you know you have them focus on this one element, this one sensory element of the whole experience. Okay, then you shift their attention to movement. Is it condensed? Is it you know staying in one part, or is it sort of radiating? And just focus on that radiation, that just the sensation of the movement. Okay, after that shift your focus to sort of diffuser localizedness. You know, is it like sharp, you know, pinprick in one spot or is it diffuse and it spreads over a large part of your body? Does it even feel like it expands outside of your body? Um, you could just keep going with this stuff. There's a whole world of sensation that most people completely miss out on unless you even think of looking into that one little thing. So there's and, just a whole world of stuff is happening in 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 an area that may hurt <clears throat> and if all your attention goes to the badness of the hurt you're, you're missing all like what you're kind of focusing on that and kind of increasing it yeah 
what it does is it also gives them a real life experience of experiencing the pain in a different way that isn't emotional. It uh, allows for that observer effect and the experience of, of, of feeling their pain in a way that is, that it's not just neutral. It's from, it's as if it's from a different perspective. So it's the perspective taking aspect that's therapeutic and that the worst thing you could do uh, with a pain patient is to have them focus on exactly how they feel the pain and how bad it feels. The badness, the badness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and cause you get lost in that. Um, once you start opening up their view of different types of sensations, like the, the idea that pain, that there's either painful or not painful reflects a certain distortion of reality, like to begin with. And so of all the non-painful, even of the gray area painful, what are all the sensations that lie in between? Because relief on the way to relief is you starting to appreciate the different levels of sensations that are just short of pain, even, you know, you know, more short of pain. Um, it takes practice to start to perceive your reality and your body in a way that, uh, that attends to all of those nuances, because that's where relief is. Relief isn't total loss of pain. It'll happen in stages. And the more someone is able to appreciate, okay, so today my pain, I still have it, but I don't have that sharp part that I hate. Okay, this is good. I can relax into this because pain will shift every day and multiple times per day. So being able to appreciate that period of relief, what, what relief can feel like, it isn't just presence or absence of pain, it's variations of relief. And ideally superimposing positive emotional learning on top of that also is a, it's a, um, it can help retrain the brain to uh, focus on pleasurable experiences, which aren't on your radar whenever you're just thinking about, is it painful or not painful? Yeah. Yeah. I think that some of this stuff, uh, and so meditation feels great also, which is, you know, there, there's also a euphoric element, even just real, even neutral is pleasurable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, well, how, where can people find you, uh, learn more about your, um, learn more about your business, learn more about what you're up to. Twitter websites. Yeah. So, um, let's see. So, uh, my personal website is visceralmind.science. Um, my sort of the Avo health website is www.avohealth.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I've had a little bit of a break from social media, uh, in the past few months. Why would you do that? <laughs> Because I'm focusing on what a positive reality could feel like. I'm creating a positive reality. Good choice. Reality. Good choice. Um, uh, so it's it's preferential filtering of my reality. So on there, I'm a farmer, underline mind body. But also, I'm creating a new persona that will be coming out in the next month or two called Neurofem. So you will be able to find more uh, meditation, free meditations on neurofem.com uh, in the next few months. 
That sounds interesting. Yeah. Any, anything else? Anything else? Yeah. One of um, empathy. Uh, one of my, one of my recent uh, realizations in how, so I, this is sort of a jump to a different direction, but um, if you have a negative internal state and you're looking at the potential benefit of social interaction on a person's physical pain, a person who you know is in, has pretty negative emotions, one of the ways that they can get the positive emotions that they lack is through empathy with someone else who can mirror to them the emotions that they want to feel. And I have a theory about this, no data whatsoever, but I have a theory about this, that that capacity to empathize with someone else's physical state is also a way to, um, to neutralize some of the uh, sensation sensations in one's own body by experiencing diffuse emotions, diffuse positive emotions like compassion or gratitude. So I, I it, it's purely an idea, um, but that's something else I want to throw out there that I, I think that pain relief can, could be socially transmitted through empathy and inter interacting with someone who's of a more positive mental state than oneself. Yeah, well, there's there's definitely some evidence that's consistent with that idea. And I look forward to more of the theory coming out. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really, I, I'm very thankful for you. Thank you. <laughs> very much. I appreciate you so much. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Whoops. I just meant to stop the recording.